welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. My name is Kelly J. This episode, I'm talking to Dr. Heather Brunskill Evans. Uh, she is the author of the book just out now called Transgender Body Politics, uh, in which she really discusses uh, the political move um, movement of the transgender lobbies, um, how women's group have responded to that, uh, the political landscape and the cultural landscape of the insidious um, assault on women's rights and children's bodies. Heather has done some fantastic research in her past into transitioning children um, and what that really means. Uh, we talk about a broad range of things from the menopause to uh, the Kira Bell case. Uh, Heather was, was sat in the courtroom for the two days and she's very familiar with many of the people that were on our side. So do enjoy, as always, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Uh, I also have a Patreon that you might like to visit and join up there. Anyway, do enjoy. So good afternoon, Dr. Heather Brunskill Evans. Thank you for joining me. It's lovely to be here, Kelly J. Great, thank you. I'm admiring your very tidy, but looks like well-read bookshelf. <laughs> They are, and do you know something? Um, for somebody who um, complains and, and critiques queer theory, your listeners know about this, this is a bookshelf full of um, all the writings of all the queer theorists <laughs> that you would ever want to read, plus all sorts of other books, but just to let you know. Yeah, yeah, because okay. um, I, I have read them, critique them, yeah. So is there a queer theory for dummies? <laughs> I mean, that's the only way I'm going to read all it. Queer, all queer theory is for dummies nowadays, I think. <laughs> all dummies. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Heather, we catch you right at the end of quite a busy week with the Kira Bell case, um, yeah. which we'll, we'll come on to. But yeah. first of all, I first came um, aware of you. Uh, yeah. I don't even think at the beginning of the Women's Equality Party, but certainly when you were kicked out and James Kirkup, I think that was his journey into this whole debate as well, was you being expelled from the Women's Equality Party. Can you tell people that don't know um, briefly what, what that was, what happened to you? Uh, right. Um, I'll try and be as brief as I can. Um, <laughs> basically, the short answer to this is, the short reply to this is that I, ha I was an elected spokeswoman for the Women's Equality Party and um, I had read a lot of documentation when I signed my, bed of, signed my part of the contract which said something like, and uh, this, isn't, this isn't a legal sentence that's going to come out of my mouth now, but it's, it's, it, uh, I have all the documentation still. It said something like this, that I believe, I, Heather, believe that gender is something that, oh, I don't know how it was put, but it was put in such a way that I could answer the question, yes, basically, I think that gender is um, something that, if I can use the word, a social construction, or it's, it can be fluid, or I don't want to police gender, whatever the words were, I signed that piece of paper, and I didn't think 
about it ever again until a certain thing happened. And I signed it because that's what I believe. I, I genuinely and absolutely believe that we can express ourselves in whichever way that we want to in relation to gender. So that seems like a, a kind of, um, I still hold that. What is important for the, for the listener to know is that I'm absolutely opposed to the following. And that is that anybody who expresses a gender in whichever way they want, for example, if I decide that I'm really a man, not that I like wearing trousers and I'm going to conform to masculine ways of dressing. You know, I'm going to go tomorrow and get my hair cut and um, start wearing trousers, blah, blah, all the time. Um, I could do that and that would be fine, but it, I can identify it, but I wouldn't be a man, unfortunately, because I might decide to be, uh, you know, my pay might be higher or I could be respected more or I could get into positions of power more if I decided I really am a man. So, um, what actually happened was at that time, I hope that makes sense, by the way, mm. people, what actually happened then to bring out the seriousness of the difference between we can identify in whichever way we want with when we identify in whichever way we want, we have really become the other sex is, is a huge gulf. I didn't know I was signing into that at all. I wasn't being disingenuous. I didn't know I was signing back into that. The reason why I'm referring to that is because they said, but you signed that piece of paper. You signed that contract admitting to this. Now, how did it get to that? It got to the point where um, we were talking about, um, at that time, maybe two or three years ago now, there was a, a uh, an idea that the Gender Recognition Act, I hope your listeners know about that, was going to be reformed. The Gender Recognition Act of 2004 was going to be reformed such that anybody could sign a piece of paper, self-identify as the other sex. We're probably sick to the death of hearing about the legal ramifications of that. I won't go into that now. But the point is that I was shocked by this. And I thought that it would have quite major consequences for women's equality. After all, I was a spokeswoman for the Women's Equality Party. And I suggested that we should talk about it, that my role as a spokeswoman would require me to begin to speak about this because as spokespeople, we all had different areas that we were speaking about. And we were all encouraged to get as many media interviews as possible, to write about it as much as possible, to flag up as much as possible the way that women didn't have equality in this country still, even though we live in a liberal democracy. So I thought, wow, this is such an important issue. I would like to talk about this. And I said this in a meeting. And the second that suggestion, came out of my mouth i don't know um i don't i feel protective about this person i'm going to talk about now i don't know why um but the leader of the women's equality party who was sophie walker said we don't talk about that <laughs> trans women are allowed into this party which i hadn't said they weren't that wasn't what i was raising 
and she moved on to the next person. I felt, do you know when you're a little child in school and you know you've said the wrong thing, the teacher has the power to just shift and move on to like, now we will talk to somebody who's talking. Now I will address myself to somebody who's talking sense and we leave Heather behind. And I came out of there um, shocked. And it was my first realization and I could talk about this for hours and we don't have time, I know. That was my first realization that of all things I could talk about anything, but I can't talk about that. And then what actually happened after that, very quickly after that, I had just written uh, a book with my colleague, Michelle Moore, about the dangers of transitioning children. And I was invited onto a, um, a radio program, Radio 4, which was the moral maze. And I said something so bog standardly ordinary mm. that children go through developmental stages. And although they can imagine that they have been born in the wrong body, um, at certain periods of childhood and you can allow them to say that and you kind of but you can't tell them you shouldn't tell them that they, they, they actually are born in the wrong body because they've been in the right body dimorphic sex we're either male or female and you know you allow kids fantasy lives in all sorts of ways um, and so it's not a problem but you mustn't believe the child it's ridiculous and I'm saying it's stronger now than I actually said it on Moral Maze because at that time three years ago I thought it was possible to be moderate and say quite sensible things without endure you know without sort of um insisting so I had a very moderate voice all hell broke loose after that and it broke loose in the women's equality party so um apparently that was transphobic bigoted at the person who made the complaint um a man um who identifies as a woman and didn't identify as a woman till uh, he was in late or you could even say old age um and this person was supported and wrote the most dreadful things about me on social media i was a nazi i was equivalent to a murderer and and all that, that sort of thing but i was silenced as a bigot and hateful person so just to cut a long story short, I was put under surveillance by the Women's Equality Party. It was a hugely transformative experience for me to undergo this. And um, I was, um, every single thing I tweeted, every single thing I said, every single thing I wrote. Um, and I went to a, an interview, which lasted possibly about three hours. It was a long time. It was just before Christmas. I had taken two... I was so naive at that time. Honestly, I really was. I was. I didn't want to go to it because I said, well, you know what I think anyway. There's nothing else that I can say. No. And they, they sort of encouraged me that it would be only a polite and reasonable thing to do to go to the meeting. So I thought, okay, I know I'm going to be, my position is going to be taken off me because apparently I can't hold the views I have about children. Um, and of course, I stated that when people are adults, they can, they can do what they want. Um, and, um, oh, God, I know oh, I'll go too far into that. I was going to say what somebody else said on the moral maze, which was utterly shocking. My opponent, Jane Fay, 
had said, as somebody, a man who identifies as a woman, had said that there's no difference between giving uh, the pill to a 16-year-old girl <laughs> as to giving her um, cross-sex hormones, which is mm. so clinically and objectively completely and utterly wrong. And yet he mm. was castigated for this outrageous statement. Uh, he wasn't castigated by anybody, nor by any of the panelists on the Moral Maze, who came down on Jane Faye's side rather than mine. When they <laughs> of course they did. Without their oh, let, I, I, I really would like to, when that verdict comes out, which I think is going to be yeah. in our favour, to be honest, I hope they rerun that episode of the Moral yeah. Maze. Uh, it would be great, wouldn't it? So mm. shall I finish my my story? Yeah. My, my, now I'm now I'm remembering the outrage that I had. So I I eventually said I don't live in London anymore. I eventually said, okay, it's just before Christmas. I don't want to be doing this. I've got a million other things to be doing right now. But I will okay to be seen to be reasonable, so that actually so that they can't say. And she didn't even come to that meeting. I did go to it, and when I was going to go to it various sensible friends said to me you need to take somebody with you and I thought I don't need to take anybody with me I don't need to help my anybody to hold my hand while I do this that's how naive I was in the end I was persuaded to take people with me I took somebody from the women's equality party another member and I also took I took a doctor with me a male doctor I say male because obviously people um, will trust him more than, uh, because he's male, not to be biased. <laughs> so, and, and um, they wanted me to um, comply with a confidentiality clause that everything that was said in that meeting was going to be confidential. I knew absolutely that that wasn't to protect me, it was to protect them, so I refused. And, and then they faffed around for half an hour. They went out, they had phone calls. I just said, I'm simply not going to do that. And then they, but the other two people did. Interestingly, my, my, uh, my supporters uh, or my um, witnesses did. And um, so now I'm completely free now to say exactly what happened. So in that meeting, um, I hope you know me as a reasonable person. I was so reasonable we talked i answered completely and absolutely truthfully because i tried to be as truthful as i can in in every context and um we came out of that at the end of the two to three hours with the other two people saying god you were amazing i mean you know it's all been explained it's all been understood now and um when there was a transcript of that sent to me, and when they gave their judgment about that, which I could appeal about against, which I did appeal, my witnesses could not believe that the judgments that were made about that had come from the meeting we had had. They absolutely couldn't believe it because none of the things of which I would then became accused were were in any way manifest by me in that meeting. In fact, um, you know, I'm, yeah, it ju they just weren't. So this back and forth went on, which ended up with, I need to get this in, so, sorry, I just do need to get this in. With them, I appealed against it, about their judgment for one reason or another, mm. and then they refused my appeal. 
And then they gave a statement about where I had been found wanting, and it had no correlation whatsoever to my views. So they, I, they needed my permission to publish that. I, I need to get this clear, actually, for anybody who's interested in it, because a rumor has been going around that I suppressed the publication of, of uh, their conclusion. I didn't. I said, you, you can, you can, I give my permission for that, but you have to give my, you have to publish everything, everything that led you to that, including, um, I would like, yeah, including all the back and forth emails and everything. And they refused themselves to publish it because they knew that they would damn themselves if everything was actually published, all the back and forth things and emails and and my rebuttal and and and, and so on um, and so I have all that documentation if anybody wants to look at it I have it all it's um I didn't sign a confidentiality clause so there you go the final thing now I'm on it the women's equality party um what was she called CEO no sorry it's come out of my mind the leader the leader Sophie Walker said on her re-election speech that Heather Branscoe Evans was seeking, um, how did she call it? What did she call it? Sorry, I'm tired after being in the court all week. Um, something like an attention seeker. Um, oh my God. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So the seriousness, even if you, if you take the women part of it out, mm. The seriousness of attempting to flag up what is actually happening to children in the name of progressive progressivism, on the name of in the name of children's rights to bodily autonomy, which I feel very passionately about, was flagged up as me being an attention seeker. Now that that there was a there was a that was filmed. I've actually. Um, tried to find that in the last six months for some reason I I uh, try to find that and I can't find it so anybody who's a sleuth who wants to who can do things I'm technologically incompetent in that way to trace back to that statement that she made uh, it would be great it would be fantastic because it demonstrates the level at which this was the the women's equality party was totally captured by trans ideology at that time absolutely i know it's changed i know there's a discussion going on now i know they're partly embarrassed by it but that's infuriating because you feel kelly j that what is happening now that more and more people speak out and you have been fantastic as one of the people who women that's spoken out the more that we've done it the more that um people feel safer the more people join us and then we drag along organizations like the women's equality party well to give it its due alongside the conservative party although it's behind the conservative party has at least begun to discuss this where if you need the labor party you get chucked out for hmm. uh, wrong think um but um yeah so they are discussing it now and i don't want to minimize that but it's infuriating to me that it took it's taken so much effort on all of our parts 
to demonstrate that there is an issue here that trans ideology bumps into an issue for women and children mm. and i don't know whether you are exhausted i i am actually you know partly i'm just exhausted by it because yeah it's a never-ending project i'll be doing it in mm. the grave i think yeah I mean, looking specifically at the Women's Equality Party, I think it's such a fine example of the nonsensical, oxymoronic, kind, oxymoronic sort of whole yeah. thing. Yeah. So you've got a group called the Women's Equality Party that yeah. came together with these very bold aims of centering on women. Yeah. And the one issue that <laughs> underpins everything is what is a woman? Absolutely. And so when, when was, who designed their contract? Like when did that uh, gender fluid nonsense, like stupid clause, when was that put in? Because we haven't, we, I haven't known that we've been under, that institutions were under this sort of um, transmist for that long. So do you know when that was? Huh. Now, that's a really interesting point you have. That was right at the beginning. That was when, I mean, I was one of the founder people of the Women's Equality Party. By that, I mean, I just donated some, some money to it, thinking that's fantastic, it's arisen. So all of their policy documents, in a way, had been written before, um, it, before the Women's Equality Party, or yeah. at the same time. So do you know when that was, Heather? Like, was that 2016? Oh, okay. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So what, what I know now, which I didn't know then, that all of this stuff, all of this um, transformation in the way we think about sex and gender had all been going on without my knowing it. Now, how had I not known that? I'm, I'm reasonably um, alert to what's going on around me. My um job was around um you know my academic job was around stuff to do with sex sexuality gender medicine and so on and i hadn't been really i had had very little awareness that this had been bubbling away and that things had been changing to our institutions to our public bodies and they had i mean mm -hmm. once the gender recognition act 2004 had emerged in a way we had already gone in, we had inexorably started on a road of which the two in 2016 was a logical consequence of the gender recognition act 2004 which said yeah you know it's a complicated act but basically it it was responsible for shifting to gender identity rather than sex as being the crucial pivotal issue around human rights were formed that those people who identify as trans um no longer had to have um surgery and so mm. on and so forth so that was the time at which i hope i'm correct i imagine some lawyers are going to jump on on me at this moment but i think i'm correct in saying from 2004 was the start of the legitimacy that a human being with a penis could say i am a woman yeah and um, i think and work had been done before well, lots of work had done before that but i think um what strikes me now reading sorry 
can I just give my book a plug? So I've just written this book, Transgendered Body Politics. I don't know whether you can see it. Ooh, just about, yes. But it's got the light shining on it, I, I know. Okay, so this is called Transgendered Body Politics. And I write about all the work that had gone in before 2004. So if you want to get a bit of the history of it, I've done it. So I won't mm. go into that now, but a lot of work had gone into that. And then the GRR 2004 was really pivotal in making concrete the, 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 the work or the ideas that had been fought for then became concretized in law, as it were, at that time. Yeah. And then the incremental changes into that legal bits and pieces of legal stuff before then yeah i mean i was going to say reading back through the 2004 gra and looking at the discussions in hansard many of which they sort of say things like oh don't be so ridiculous it's preposterous that somebody with a beard would call themselves a woman so the sensible discussions in parliament really didn't foresee what i think the architects of the bill absolutely knew what yes. they were doing they knew the language was opaque they knew that they'd be able to reinsert meaning into certain terms within that act. I think it was all totally deliberate. Absolutely. And do you know one of the major actors in this is somebody called Stephen Whittle. Um, and in, we should not, this, I'm just making a general point here, whatever the issue is, whatever the issues are, we cannot be allowing the interests of very, you know, a single individual or a small group of individuals who, are, who have been so strategic about this or about anything, any topic, to then change the law, which is going to have such impact on so many people and just quietly get it through Parliament. That is what has happened. A very very serious thing has happened. So mm. I went from getting embroiled in women's equality party nonsense, madness, you know, like 1984, it's the women's equality party, but we, you know, we can't even define what a woman is. Well, we can define what a woman is because a woman is anybody who says she's a woman. Um, that was their, their starting premise. But I then began to realize that this is very serious at the at the whole political level of of human rights actually and it, it i think incrementally bit by bit we're getting into a very serious situation where we can't speak where books are banned where um people are policed we don't need to go into that you've had your own experience of all of that but bit by bit I was talking to it by, to somebody the other day and she was saying it's a bit like, you know, I think it's frogs. When you put frog, a frog in, in water, if you turn up the heat a little bit, it doesn't try to get out because it's just warm. And in the end, the frog gets used to the temperature and then you kill it. You know, it, we've got to be careful in liberal democracy that what we don't do is incrementally, bit by bit, bit by bit, or we'll get used to things which 10 or 15 years ago we would have found terrific but we don't any longer because it's part of our nor normality, as it were, um, till in the end, our rights have gone. It won't just be, it, it, this is not, won't be fought just around trans rights. It'll be fought as if trans people don't have rights. They have the full complement of human rights, in fact. Um, 
it's, it, it, it bodes well for a sickness being embedded, I think, in our body politic rather than just, uh, you know, mm. the uh, bodies. So you, you wrote this book about uh, transing kids and um, it's, I think it's fair to say that most people had no idea, general population, even three years ago, had no idea that actually what we were doing to children. Um, as you researched that book, were there any really defining moments that were just sort of like, I, were you overwhelmed? Did you have to take breaks because you saw this sort of incredible harm being done to children? as not even being done to children as an act of cruelty, but as an act of supposed compassion? Well, your last point as an act of supposed compassion was one of the most shocking things. If it was an act of cruelty, then it would be easier to stomach because you think, well, these people over there, they're just nasty, horrible people who want to do cruel things. The fact that it was being done as an act of compassion was, it was one of the, sh the shocking things that went along with all the various shocks that I kept being given. Um, I hold me to the act of compassion because I do want to come back to that. Um, I, I didn't take a break because um, th there was me and my colleague, as I've told you, um, I don't know whether I have told you, my colleague, Professor Michelle Moore, who embarked on this project. We did write two books, in fact about tra uh, medically transitioning children. It, they were edited collections. We wanted to get as many voices as we could into objecting to this. So the more we got into it, the more serious it became. And I just felt that we were running a race. We've got to get this, these, we've got to make the general public aware of this. So I started off on uh, something that just, you know, I thought was a serious thing. And in the end, I ended up thinking this is a, a, an issue of such proportions, which are affecting all of our children, not just the children who are medically transitioned, but all of our children currently, including the kinds of things they learn at school um, and so on and so forth. But, and if it made the children happy, that would be okay. But it's causing so much problems, and I can get back to that. I could literally be talking here for hours with you, if you could get back to that. But do, just before I forget the act of compassion, I ended up thinking that it is not an act of compassion, because obviously it is with some people. Um, but I think that I think it's an act of absolute. Uh, I was going to say cruelty and I was going to edit my words there because I'm always knowing that somebody's going to jump on top of me for the words I use. But I think that, you know, trans adults, not all trans adults, I have to say that, I don't think that all people who identify as trans take this view that I'm going to talk about now. But, but some do, a hardcore do. And mm. it is so cruel. It is so cruel because they're prepared to use children to advance their own cause. And I now see it from, for these people. It's not compassion. It is totally instrumental and selfish. And it is an outrage. It's beyond an outrage. Because mm. all the glamorous people, usually men who identify as women, 
who have become models, who've made their fame and fortune through appearing to be a woman and who are more womanly than, than me um, in their presentation and so on. No, actually know the dangers of attempting to physically transition to another sex. Now, although they may appear glamorous, and I'm not going to go into it because I'm going to be accused of scammering. There are people who appear on the outside to be um, composed, relaxed with their bodies, are undergoing all sorts of painful procedures, that, um, ways that their bodies can't be transformed into the other sex, dangers to their medical health, which they are not presenting to the general public. So what you see there is a facade, but underneath that, they know, or they should know, it's their moral obligation to know that if you give these drugs, which are difficult for them as an adult, to children, you are multiplying the possible, just physical, dangerous consequences to children. Um, so to, to say, to use the usual thing of, oh, well, if I had been, you know, I know that I was, a girl when I was three years old and um, if I had been allowed to medically transition that would have helped me so much as an adult. You're effectively saying I'm prepared to sacrifice children to the cause of what it is, what will make an adult person who transitions more comfortable. Mm. I mean, mm. So what you asked me, I think, whether there was a defining moment. There was a defining moment for, for uh, me. Um, and that is that between the first book and the second book, not the book I've just held up, between the first and second books about children, which were published by Cambridge Scholars, um, I thought that people who worked at the Tavistock would be very upset by the book and deny the book and say that we'd got it completely wrong. What actually happened was a number of clinicians contacted us privately and said how much they'd appreciated the book. Thank goodness we'd written the book and were flagging up the problems with the medical transition of children. And that the clinicians, some of them themselves, didn't dare say that that's that what was happening was completely against the medical ethics which they had begun with, which they were signed up to. And now that is a very complex issue. And you could give me an hour on why a clinician wouldn't say that or, or wouldn't be open about it. But if you can think of the kinds of things that you have experienced yourself, but just mm. a woman is an adult human female, um, we can perhaps understand, you know, people who, some of them are younger, some of them have mortgages to pay, small children, whatever. There were a whole range of circumstances. That made me think, my God, even the, I, I was, I would, it was preferable for me to think of the doctors as just being so, ideologically positioned in relation to queer theory that they didn't that they were doing it to children it hadn't actually occurred to me that there would be people at the Tavistock who themselves were objecting to this but didn't dare say 
Mm. How mad is that? How far down the road have we become? Have mm. we gone? That um, that that has happened. And of course, then you get um, you know the lobby groups like mermaids, gendered intelligence, blah blah, almost advising the doctors. <laughs> this is even more mad. This is even more mad. Um, it's got to the point where mermaids and gendered intelligence are advising the doctors. These organizations haven't got a medical qualification between them. Um, and, but who are telling the doctors what would be the best thing? And by the way, nor really have the doctors at the Tavistock. They're, they're psychologists rather than medical doctors. But um, I, I know you and I talked about this quite some time ago, and I was far less forgiving um, yeah. or understanding about, uh, and I still feel that way. Yeah, um, I that. absolutely. <laughs> and my view is that if I had doubts that what I was doing that was going to permanently, irreparably damage a child's health, but I thought it was questionable, I don't know, mortgage or not, I'm not sure I could participate. But I think credit to you um, that dialogue remains open because you do have compassion for the the doctors and psychotherapists that, that had to go along with it. Um, do you think there's been a, from your experience, from your talking to um, psychotherapists at the Tavistock, do you think there's been a, an overwhelming change? Do you think, do you think um, the, the final throes of Polly Carmichael and the management that have allowed this to happen, do you think Kira Bell's case will represent the final throes of that? Yes, I do. It uh, may not be completed with the conclusions of this case, but like everything, you know that we have, we started off from nothing, all of us, we started off at such a grassroots level. And within three years, we are now, we've now managed to, um, when I say we, a number of people were instrumental in this, um, to get this case about whether children can consent to medical treatment. Um, and I would like at this moment to flag up um, somebody called Sue Evans, um, who was a psychiatric nurse who resigned from the Tavistock a number of years ago because yeah. she understood- Before it was fashionable. Before it was fashionable, that's right. And she has been a hugely instrumental in, in the Kira Bell and bringing the Kira Bell case. Yeah. And then, of course, lawyers and so on got involved. But she was the, the, um, the motor behind that. So, um, but I have to say, uh, to go back, I think you and I, just to retrace our steps a bit, I think you and I may be a bit similar in terms of personality um, in that... If I see something which is which I think is wrong for some reason, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's because I don't know. <laughs> I would have to leave it, lead a much more comfortable life maybe if I didn't do it. But I, I have to address it, even if I'm the only one who's addressing it. I mean, it's um, it's such an impulse in me to do that. Mm. Now. Having said that about the doctors, let's go back to the psychologists, in fact. I think that they end, they did whistle below. You know, they did, they, they were confused at the beginning. They doubted themselves. And, you know, when an institution has been captured, one of the ways in which that's affected is because people think, am I going mad here? Is it, is it 
them or me and all of those stages have gone through they have whistleblown and continue now some of some people i think uh, have resigned and continue to work um to bring attention mm. to 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 the crimes that are effectively uh, uh, happening so now we get back to kira bell and so i was at the um royal courts of justice this week I can tell you I had such a range of emotions. Kira Bell, I have to say, was hugely composed and dignified. I don't know whether your listeners know about Kira Bell, but so shall I just give a little brief thing about Kira Bell? Yeah. So Kira Bell was a young woman at the age of just before her 16th birthday, I think, who had decided that she was really male. And, um, Kira will talk about the way that she had a very disturbed childhood. We won't go into the whole range of experiences of what that actually means. But she went to the Tavistock and instead of getting the underlying causes for her identification as male dealt with, that they weren't. And um, she was put very quickly onto cross-sex hormones. Now, just so your listeners know, it's now become something that um, if, in, if in most psychological services have signed up to something called the Memorandum of Understanding about mm -hmm. conversion therapy, and that means that if you treat the young person's identification as the opposite sex, as a pathology, you're converting them, and this is a moral wrong, you mustn't do that. So if a young person tells you that they're the opposite sex all the other co-existing problems that this young person has has to be treated as if it's separate from the claim that you are a particular sex so kira was very quickly pushed down a road of cross-sex hormones so she mm. took testosterone eventually and conclusion is that she became to all intents and purposes um a male young man and um he had mis uh, double mastectomy grew beard changed the larynx the vocal cords i mean and so on and so forth um and then realized um i, I feel a bit um i hope if kira listens to this i hope i'm representing her correctly here um because the worst thing is to speak for somebody else um to realize that the fantasy of being possible to get out of to change sex is a fantasy now when people realize it is an utter fantasy which children should never ever be encouraged to believe will result in the material reality of changing sex that in itself is an injustice to children um once she got it she 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 couldn't help realize that the past five or six years had been destructive to her and and that she should she was not taken care of at yeah. all she mm. should have been taken care of now i think a lot of people once they go down that road can't do what kira's done because it's a very brave person that thinks i've wrecked my body i can't go back she can never go back she can stop taking testosterone which is what she has but there are irreparable changes to her body which will never be rectified and um, she's lost 
all kinds of things about her teenage years and all the things that she went to the Tavistock for in the first place, since they never got addressed, have to be addressed now. Mm. So she's doing that. Yeah. So she's taking the Tavistock or her case. It's a judicial review where a person can, or the general public can challenge the law. She's challenging the law plus a parent, an anonymous parent who doesn't want her child to be transitioned by the Tavistock. This anonymous parent is called Mrs. A that the children cannot consent. They are incapable of consenting. So when the Tavistock says, um, by the way, it's not the Tavistock, the broad hospital, it's the gender it's, identity yeah. development services yeah. within the Tavistock called the JIDS, but I'm calling it the Tavistock for shorthand, just in case anybody has a go at me about that. Um, the, the, the JIDS, the JIDS within the Tavistock can't argue that children as young as 10 can consent to what will be um to go down the line that kira mm. bell has gone down mm. but the argument is i suppose that kira bell is an anomaly because most children who are sent down that road are happy with it and they yeah. have no evidence whatsoever well, they don't follow up do they they, they don't, don't follow up for a start with up. anyone. Yeah. Um, can I just ask? For the, so, I've Venice went uh, to day two, and I followed uh, Hannah Barnes' tweets, who's the right. uh, yeah. producer for I want to see Panorama uh, Newsnight. BBC. Newsnight. And so, <clears throat> what I thought was very interesting is a that basically the Tavistock JID service is prim primarily uh, the. the the one for the adolescents is looking after children. Basically their whole case was, dear child, it's your fault. You consented, it's your fault. I felt that that was their case. Also, if the memorandum of understanding has an affirmation model, and the first thing you do with any child that comes in is you affirm that they are right, that they are born in the wrong body or however they wanna say it, then there can, their consent can't be right because you've already told them that their disordered thinking is right. So therefore they lack any capacity to consent whether they're 10 or 25 because the first and foremost basis of their consent is a lie. Spot on. It's, I, I just, I watched it and that what, one of the things they said was like a 12 year, some 12 year olds are having sex, so therefore 12 year olds understand what sex is. And I just thought most people have no idea what sex is until the moment they first have sex. Do you know, sitting to the evidence that the QC of the, uh, of that, of the, the Tavistock's QC provided was, was like a being dragged into an Alice in Wonderland world going down the rabbit hole um and it it was difficult to it's difficult to convey that to people because in a sense it's like the, because it's alice in wonderland the ordinary person yet can't really believe i don't think that such a thing could be happening on the national health <laughs> yes yeah and that is why um the, the Kira Bell versus the Tavistock case is so important. Whatever the results are, so the result that we're hoping for is that nobody under the age of 18 can, can consent to um, hormone treatment. Um, 
uh, the puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. Um, we possibly won't win. Um, I think that um, the well, I don't want to say too much actually because I don't want to preempt anything. But I, I the uh, the QC on our side was excellent. I felt, um, but then the other side would say you would say that, wouldn't you? Um, ult um, ultimately sensible. The thing that really, if I can just say this, I mean, I could go bit by bit over the case. I'm, I'm just going to say two things, I think. One is, they, the other thing, if they're saying that children consent, they, they, they keep a vital bit of evidence out of that, is that four out of five children, if left alone to go through puberty, stop just identifying with the other sex. So four out of, you know, 80% of children, if left alone, resolve this, whatever their issues are about their bodies, their body dysphoria, through the process of going through adolescence. Mm. Um, so that's one thing that the majority of people don't know either. Um, they th the majority of people think, because trans activists have been very um, instrumental in, in trying to persuade people, that trans is something that you're actually born with. It is, it is a ridiculous no notion which has no scientific basis to it whatsoever. Anyway, um, so the children aren't given all the evidence. They're given a rosy glow view. And although you may say to a child, you know, you might become infertile, they say you may. Actually, you will. There is no may about it. So the language is sort of watered down and you're asking a young child who's never, you know, had um, sex, possibly not even started that period, um, to project into what they might feel like when they're in their 20s. Mm. I mean, the whole thing is just such nonsense. Let's not even bother going down there. Um, but um, I think that the thing that really interested me was that um, when the other side were giving their view, the QC for the Tavistock, they, they, they made a case that our side was without evidence that we were, they called it a priori, that we were making an a priori case that it is wrong to medically transition children. And basically by saying that, they meant that it was a theoretical position that we were coming from, where all they do, these wonderful clinicians are just, are just, they're at the coal face and they, they're left with the practical consequences of a child um, who is so troubled that the only logical consequence of this mm. is to magically transition them. So the wonderful, and I sat, having done all the research that I have, spent the last three years of my looming life um, getting deeper and deeper into the ideas that underpay, that have gone to underpinning what the Tavistock does in a practical way. It was, I was just practically thinking, well, it's a hopeless case because people feel that, people do, you know, are the judges going to think, well, these children really are born in the wrong body and these poor clinicians just have very little, you know, a room to maneuver within this. And in some cases, not all, but in some cases, it's best to send them off mm. for medical transition. But our side, our barrister, Jeremy Hyam came back 
and said the perfect thing and that is it's actually our side which is evidence-based and it's the other side which never ever can manage to produce the evidence to back up their position in fact can be seen and i'm not going to go too far down this road to sometimes actually lie or or hold on to the evidence which would yeah. refute that what they're doing is um justified by empirical evidence so at the end of the case we were hopefully uh, hopeful that some something would change in relation to this and that even if we didn't get even if the law is not changed or the law is just partially changed that the Tavistock have to bring it to court every time what we wanted was for every time a person is going to a child is going to be put onto medical transition that it's not up to those psychologists to make up their mind as to whether that's the right thing to do or not it's not up to the parents many of whom have been captured by trans ideology themselves and it's not up to the child it's up to some body which can take into account the rights of the child in all its full complexity whether they'll go along with that we wait to see well i i'm just i venice and i talked about this a couple of days ago and I just keep coming around to the idea that even in that case, well, two things. Number one, um, every judge and barrister called children with breasts girls and children with penises boys. Absolutely. And there was an absolute recognition of biological sex Absolutely. and none of the other nonsense. So there was no such thing as a trans kid in that courtroom. They were just boys and girls. Um, so that's one thing I thought was good. Um, but also that even in some of the other language, we are saying that there is a category of human that is a trans person. And I just think that we are men and women. Um, and sometimes those men will have intersex conditions or those women will have intersex conditions. But we are men and women. That is such a tiny proportion of the population. It's like saying... Um you know, somebody born with a cleft palate doesn't mean that the majority of human beings have two, two lips that are yeah. joined together. I mean, it's a ridiculous argument. It's a, let's just chuck that argument out. Let's chuck, oh. right, I'll say it again. So it there are men and there are women. By the trans movement mm. as a justification. So just chuck it out. It's of no consequence whatsoever. But we're now in this part of we're, we're now um and they've been so effective in their campaigning yeah, that people are beginning to think that a trans person is somehow a different thing to a man and a woman and i just think we need to really rapidly get absolutely. away from it absolutely I, you know it's um it, it just it beggars belief that's taken a court case Yes. Say that we shouldn't try and we shouldn't lie to children and tell them that they can change sex and it, uh, yes. help them do it. It's yes. bonkers. It is. But there we are. It's absolutely bonkers. The whole thing is bonkers. And if you, you know, you talk to people, um, because, you know, we went and we had a, a sort of, we debriefed. Um, 
and um, we ended up sitting um, next to some people and talking about the case and, and they couldn't you know they couldn't compute what we were mm. saying you know these people who had no knowledge of it they just literally couldn't compute it so the more the ordinary person gets to know what it actually means this means taking back the languages why your case why your your simple phrase women are adult human um females has been so effective is the language has to be pulled back from the language that has been created by an extremely ideological movement, including women, can be bifurcated into cis women and trans women. So, mm -hmm. so, but underneath that, we have trans women who are allegedly the most vulnerable of all women, which means that we have to, when we're talking about women, be concerned with their rights, not allegedly cis women's rights. Have you, I hope I haven't made a dog's dinner of that. Um, it, it's also bizarre anyway, mm. but uh, we have to stop using the language to bring us yeah. back to reality. It's like, like having a cold shower. We all need to have a bucket of cold water thrown on us to bring us back to some reality about well, this. One, <laughs> one way you've uh, attempted <laughs> to do that is by writing. Um, and your last book, which is Transgender Gender Body Politics, um, I'm assuming it's the full spectrum of, of um, both the politics and the literal bodies that we harm. Uh, I know you've written somewhat on, uh, well, let me just backtrack. Who is the book for? Who have you written it for? Who should read it? Um, well, I'm hoping more than the normal constituency of, per you know, there are various constituencies who might read it. Um, it is a book where I go beyond children and I do talk about the trans movement as a men's rights movement and in that sense um, it may it would be interesting to feminists but I hope that it isn't just uh, I hope I'm not having just written for a feminist constituency it's for anybody who's concerned about the way uh, the um, way that women and children are being affected by the trans ideology. So who's it written for? It's basically written for people, either feminist or not, or whatever, I don't care, um, who think that medicalizing children and accepting men who say they're women into rugby, women's rugby teams, or putting men who have raped and who are genitally intact into women's prisons because they say that they're women. Or that when Stonewall, when the Crown Prosecution Service becomes a Stonewall champion with all the serious consequences that has for liberal democracy, these are not separate areas. You know, some people will concentrate on the children some people will concentrate on men's right, uh, women's rights. Some people will concentrate on the threat to liberal democracy, on the lack of in you know, the silencing of speech, and um, and so on. But they're all connected, mm. and unless we join the dots with this, none of it really makes sense. So I was trying, and I hope I've done it, but it's up to other people to be the judge of that. I was trying to draw out the ways in which. This all started, as you had said, almost at the beginning of this interview, 
that um, this started a long time ago. These ideas began actually at the end of the 20th century and they largely began with something called queer theory and trans activism, which wasn't actually um, linked as people would like to say with the lesbian and gay movement of the Stonewall riots. It simply wasn't. This was a later edition. That's another story, but it began to be a trans rights movement at the end of the 20th century. And so they coalesced, Stephen Whittle is a, a classic example of somebody who drew all of this together and was instrumental in the Gender Recognition Act 2004. So I was trying to, to get back to it, without being too theoretical about it, I really have tried not to be too theoretical about it. And I've tried to put my own experiences into it. So I do talk about the Women's Equality Party and I'd like to thank Spinifex Press, who published it, for encouraging me to put my own experiences in. Because my training is, I can write in, in, in an academic way, which isn't going to get the message over to the ordinary person yeah. of what the, the sheer um, magnitude of the impact of shifting from sex to gender identity which is what the trans rights movement wanted and the queer theory has fought for. Um, it seems such a thing, simple thing, from sex to gender identity, surely, surely they're equivalent. No, they're not. Mm. They're separate. So I tried to draw out how they're separate, the consequences that happens when you conjoin them and you start to forget about biological sex and how it's impacted that central fulcrum that central source it's like going to the core of something and then it spreads out into all these other things but they're all traced back to that shifting from sex to gender identity yeah once you've gone to i'm a woman because i say i am i'm a woman because i feel i am then everything else follows what you people say um we probably talk quite a lot about this now but what people say is, but, you know, women can identify as men. It is an equal opportunity experience. Why do you concentrate on the men who identify as women? Simply because this trans movement has happened in the context of, of uh, relations between the sexes where men have dominance. Now, and now I could stray off into talking about patriarchy and so on, which I, I could do, but just to bring it back, when a woman identifies as a man and she's put into a male prison, the male prisoners couldn't care less. They might actually, horrible thing to say, be pleased. They now have a woman in their prison. Um, by the way, before anybody jumps at me about this, I'm not saying that all men are rapists. So, um, Just some of them that are actually in prison for rape. For rape. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They might well be rapists. Exactly. <laughs> so nobody is trying to say to, um, you know, if a woman gets into a, a boxing ring with a boxer, saying that she's a male, I doubt very much whether the male boxer is going to be too worried that he's going to be smashed to a pulp by her. He's probably yeah, of course. Yeah. got a good chance of winning here. You know, men are not bothered by, I mean, nobody's asking a man to call himself a prostate haver. 
So we never ask men to budge over. We're asking women and children to budge over mm. to, to what is, in fact, a very masculinist movement. It promotes the rights of men in so many different ways. Yeah. So I call it a trans rights movement. Uh, sorry, a men's rights movement. That's what I do in the book. So I would like to persuade somebody who's not interested in feminism, who can't stand the word patriarchy, who thinks that all feminists are just, you know, um, crazed, ideological, mad people. Some of us may be, some of us may not be, just as you get these groups in any area of society. I am trying to make a logical case for everybody being having to have an interest in joining the dots which is what the book is about okay um earlier we were talking when you talked about kira bell you talked about how brave she was because actually stopping admitting reflecting and realizing what you've done is a is a very bold move and not something even people that haven't done extraordinary harm to themselves but you know many of us would rather push on through and prove ourselves right somehow rather than admit we're wrong and accept defeat. Um, when it comes to the likes of Stephen Whittle, uh, Susie Green, my view is that they can't admit that what they've done is irreparable harm. So for someone like Stephen Whittle, who was who was the architect of the GRA 2004, because I think what she wanted to do was get married and we weren't allowing her because she was female and her wife is female. And so I think, I think there's an element, um, my, my view of Stephen Whittle is that she has done so much damage because actually she's incredibly angry with the world and herself on the basis of what she has brought to herself. Um, how do you think, or do you think it's feasible to crack that particular nut? Which particular one? Do you mean the particular nut of people who are going to carry on regardless? It's almost like a, 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 a kind of madness with them. They will not, they, they can't stop. Um, in the end, I think we will stop them. Um, yeah, I do. I actually do believe this, not because I think that if I if if I don't stop them, or if I'm not part of, <laughs> I can't possibly stop them single-handedly. I'm not part of a whole movement, which is you know, with which is halting, managing to turn this tank around. Um, Part, yeah, I so part of me would think, well, I've done enough now, actually. I've done quite a lot. I could hand this baton on and somebody else is going to take it off me now. Um, so I feel two things. I feel that I can't hand the baton on because I do think <laughs> that I have placed within it <laughs> and, um, and that I keep seeing things maybe that other people might um, not see, but also that we will eventually... Um, halted and so for example with Susie Green of Mermaids I think um, and I'm going to try and talk sympathetically here by the way I think that um, if you had for whatever reasons of one's own 
um, done what she has done to her son. Um, she would, if she sees it in any other way than that what she did was an honourable, ethical thing to do, it's almost like she could not, I don't know, I can't project onto what she actually feels inside. So I'm just- I don't think she, I, you couldn't live with yourself, right? Speculating. She wouldn't be able to live with herself. Now the danger is then, <coughs> excuse me, we all, we know this from any experience that we have, that some people who are not real self-reflexive or who can't live with the decisions they make, they try to get other people to join in with it. I remember mm. when I used, to, I used to be quite a heavy smoker in my 20s and I can remember trying to give up. And whenever I tried to give up, smokers would be continually offering me cigarettes. I could have lived, you know, never buying another packet because it's like they couldn't bear that I was making a different decision to them. And I feel that the whole thing about transing children is a way, if we go back to mermaids, is a way of saying, I did it, and I'm going to get everybody else to join in and think this was an amazing thing. And if you don't join in with it, um, any not joining in with it makes the person feel bad. Yeah. And in the end, you end up with such a defense mechanism around you um, and I could explain it all in psychological terms. I don't even feel, you know, you know, we're all flawed. Uh, but the fact that whatever the psychological mechanisms were in her case ended up with the catastrophic consequences for all of our children yeah. uh, is appalling. And I have to say that they're backpedaling over the, the new directives from the Department of Education, which... I'd like to flag up worse are saying what we have fought hard to say for the past three years and were castigated, including by the Women's Equality Party, that, you know, the ordinary thing that you, you know, it, it, children are not born in the wrong body. Let's yeah. actually be gender fluid and let kids get on expressing themselves in whichever way they want. Um, but it's dangerous to children to give them the idea. Mm. You're, you're encouraging the very thing that you say you're relieving. If you tell a child that the reason why it, you know, if you had told me the reason why I wanted to climb the trees with, the, with boys when I was a kid um, was because I might actually be a boy, you would have been giving me the idea that there was something wrong with my body. So the very thing that you would say you're alleviating gender dysphoria, you're giving to the child to see this obsequious, embarrassing backpedaling that's going on, but then there's always, then, but then um, becomes justified. I mean, the, I see it in, in very, um, You know the way that bullies are able to be bullies because they somehow have some sort of um, way of their desire to bully is so strong that they know what strategies to use. Like if I was going to try to bully somebody, I would probably think, oh, what do I do? I try to work it out logically, whereas the, the bully doesn't work out logically what to do. They somehow know how to, where the weaknesses are. Yeah. Mm. So I, I feel that mermaids will just keep coming back. They will keep coming back.
and nothing will knock them back. They will keep coming back, trying to get at the weaknesses of our side of the, I'm probably giving too much away now, um, trying to get at our, our, where our weaknesses are. But in the end, what happens to a bully is the minute it tips to the other side and there are more people on the other side, they just slink off. So mm. I, don't, I don't think Susie Green or anybody else or Jay Stewart from Gendered Intelligence will, will have a sort of personal reckoning with themselves. No. I, I just think that they'll slink off and hope that their pasts don't keep catching up with them. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, if uh, just to just finally, because I've kept you for a really long time. Um, in your book, you um, Which one? Um, the latest one, the latest oh. one. So in transgender body politics, yep. you have talked about all aspects of the fight back, um, all different voices in the fight back. And you've made the mistake of also mentioning me. Um, <laughs> in your book which means instantly uh, right across this side of the movement uh, people won't read it uh, what do you make of the horizontal hostility um, how do you think we get over that I mean I've I just uh, try and ignore it all now and it is relentless but uh, what feeds into that and what harm does it do the pushback as a whole Well, honestly, if we intend to win this battle, it is the most stupid thing that we can do, which is to fragment into little little armies here, there, and, and, and having skirmishes. Um, I don't want the listeners to, to think, um, or the viewers, to think that the whole of our movement is fragmented, because it's not, because mm. we're here and we're strong and, you know, that, but that there have been the, these fallings out going on, as I'm sure that they clearly are on um, from from those who um, have a different view to us. But you know, I knew this somehow. I knew this right from the beginning. Um, that I, I I'm not on Facebook, as you know. I've never been on Facebook. Um, that's not quite true. I do have an account because I made one years ago when I was at university in London, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't matter. So somebody could say, yes, you are on Facebook because there's a community. I, I never look at it. I never participate in it and whatever. <laughs> um, because it's caused so much upset. People can say this, people can say that. And I think, God, this movement is traumatizing enough to keep, to keep on keeping steady to keep a cool head, to keep grounded, to have any kind of perspective, to get caught up into skirmishes about whether you're on the left or the right, or whether you um, speak to that person or speak to another person, apart from anything else, it seems to me, apart from the fact that it feels like being dragged back into the playground, and I hate a playground politics and never want to go back there, it seems to me that it is unethical as well. And it's unethical mm. because what we are doing is we are fighting for each other. I'm not just fighting for myself or my daughter or my grandchildren or, the, the, or my best friend or her children or, and sons indeed. Um, it's, it's because I have an abstract sense that I want all women and all children, boys and girls, to be protected from this um, 
empire, um, men's rights empire, which is big by stealth, has been created. And I can do it for the woman who disagrees with me. Hmm. Um, I'm doing it for her. She may think, well, she doesn't want my help. So what? She's free to think that. But um, yeah. how I feel about it is I think what I want to say about you, let me come back to you. Um, I think you're fantastic. I always have. Um, I don't know. We probably disagree on some things and not on others. I don't, actually, I don't care. I really don't care. Um, you inspire me. You give me energy. You are one of the people that has made me feel that whatever happens to you, whether you're dragged off to a police station and get interrogated um, by somebody, or whether people are going to pile in on the top of you about X, Y, and Z, um, you've stood your ground. And I want to be with people who are standing their ground. That gives me a comfort. Um, I don't want anybody to tell me, um, don't speak to that person, because the reason why I will rebel against that is the very reason that wanted me to rebel against the Women's Equality Party or against anybody telling me that, that, it's, that I'm not a very nice person if I just don't allow men who identify with women to, to be upset that I've said children are not uh, are born in the right bodies mm. um, because I'm being unkind to them. You know, I, the moral right, I feel a moral right. I, I express the truth that I have. Um, you know, I could be wrong, but I want to be in a marketplace of everybody expressing their truths Mm. Um, us having a debate about it um and i love being with people who will speak their truth and i found that often people ring me up not often they don't want to exaggerate people say you know you, 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 you if you want your career to progress it's probably best if you don't speak to that person when this happened to me initially that was another shock. I've had so many shocks. <laughs> how it's honestly, if I had known that at this stage in my life, I was going to get into something which was completely new to me, I wouldn't have believed it because I feel that I was reasonably wise before I embarked on this. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I take no notice of that. If I talk to the people who I feel are doing the right thing, in for, you know in looking after women and children that's what i do mm. did i mean i i i wonder uh you you're a couple of years older than me and you've got grandchildren so you're in a different stage of your life yeah did you know that you were as resilient did i mean i i, I know that you've been tested with bereavement and sort of personal things but just in a in a I don't know if activism is professional, but in this realm of your life, did you know that you were, were as resilient? And conversely, did you know other people were as strategic and covert as maybe you've seen since you've been in this fight? So the strategic and covert stuff, I hadn't quite understood that. 
actually. I hadn't understood that. And, and now I think that that was a naivety on my part. And, you know, one of my children, my oldest son will say to me, I told you, mom, you know, you, you've been so liberal, lefty, and all of these things have been going on and you, you've failed to recognize it. And I think there is some truth in that. Um, but anyway, that's another story. To go back to my own resilience. Um, interestingly, um, I can think, I'm going to give you two examples. When I was in the, uh, when I was at school in the sixth form and the LGBTQI sparkle unicorn mermaids people um, will want to say that I um, am homophobic, transphobic, every kind of phobic. When it wasn't fashionable, when the, um, the, we, I remember in the sixth form, we were discussing whether homosexuality should be actually be made legal or not. And I was the only one in the whole of the sixth form that believed that, of course, people same-sex attracted should, it should not be illegal to mm. be same-sex attracted. So I've been on the other side of the fence here, arguing for, um, for LGB rights all my life. Yeah. So that so it was quite hard actually at that point when I was 16 and 17 to take a stand on this and given that I had my own I was immature in terms of my own sexual life and so on but I did take a stand the next time Kelly J that I took a stand and this is um I had a baby in I had a baby when I was 22 um my first baby and um I was as fit as a lop. Um, it was highly technologically interventionist, the birth that I had. And I knew that there was something deeply wrong in the medicalization of childbirth. And um, I'd never even heard of the medicalization of childbirth. But what, what really interested me was that I felt that I'd been more or less raped through the childbirth, you know, I'd been hooked up to all sorts of machines. I'd been given drugs that, that I'd refused to have. Um, I'd been given an episiotomy. I don't know whether people know the seriousness of what an episiotomy is. I felt quite traumatized by it. But the women in the ward were grateful. They felt that they had been rescued by the doctors. And, you know, they were women who were participating, women health professionals who were participating in this as well. It wasn't just male health professionals. And I felt that something terrible had happened to my bodily integrity, my autonomy, my wish to do it my way. And that was quite a disturbing experience um, because I realized that women were, you know, I was at the height of thinking that feminism was going to save the world and so on. And I, I became aware of how compliant the women were to the sort of masculinist narrative about their own bodies. They didn't seem to have the defiance that I had. And then the next baby I had, um, I had a home birth. And the doctors, and at that point, the doctors were, um, you know, it was all high tech. And the doctors refused, I was only 24, the doctors refused to give me a home birth. They were actually phasing out home births at that point. I would live well, in- Well, how very dare you? Yeah. And I was just 24 and they, for seven up to before, so until it be, I was seven weeks before giving birth was the very first, after the refusal was the first antenatal um, checkup they'd given me. They were prepared to almost see 
me, you know, um, to not give me any health care. So I refused and I stuck with having a home birth. And they told me my baby would, you know, was practically a baby murderer and, and all the rest of it. So even at age 24 then, I was being inducted into this. God, um, somehow I can stand outside of this. And then women would say to me, are you allowed? Are you allowed? And I think, what do you mean, am I allowed? Um, I'm going to have a home birth, um, you know, until it's made illegal, until they have to drag me off in, in handcuffs and make me give birth in prison, I'm going to have a home birth. And um, so, yes, uh, it, this isn't a new thing for me. It's basically what I'm trying to say is, I could give you many, many examples through my life where I have stuck out for something when it hasn't been popular and when people have threatened me through all kinds of guilt tripping, all kinds of ways in which they've told me my ideas are so, so ludicrously dangerous, I should be practically, you know, dragged off to the gulag somewhere. And then of course, with my age, I have the experience of when my own daughter had babies, she had a home birth just like that. So what had been, what had been um, seen as so antisocial through women like myself participating in the home birth movement, which I did, um, it then has, it, what was so abnormal has now become normal. So I've seen a sort of way in which history changes, ideas change, what concepts you have really matter mm. actually. And then, and it is possible to change things. So in a way I'm astonished by what's going on. And on the other hand, I think, my God, you know, uh, it's about time they started revering older women and letting women talk about bodies and children instead of silencing older women and saying that older men who've transitioned into women can call women into women, uh, can call women like me Nazis, bigots, that I have no right to talk about their bodies while they can talk about the woman's body mm. ad nauseum. I mean, mm. how crazy is that so we're losing the wisdom of older women young girls now think that they know everything just as we did when we were teenagers and they think that they're into gender diversity when this is the most normative heteronormative yeah um, movement that one yeah could, yeah i mean i've i've just joined a menopause group because that's the stage of life i'm at and um i cannot tell you the number of times I just want to say to women, what are you doing? Like there's a, um, I have this theory. I don't know if it's true. I don't think we've got time to explore it where I think heterosexual women on the whole have a harder time in menopause than lesbians. I think anxiety and so on of losing your sexuality and attractiveness is worse for heterosexual women. Penny Jane, come can we please have another 10 minutes to talk about this? Go on then, uh, yes, go on then. I could kiss you, I could kiss you at this very moment. Um, <laughs> in a non-sexual way, of course. <laughs> Given that both of us are heterosexual. Um, you know, I was determined, just like I was determined, I'm determined always to have bodily integrity. Absolutely. So I was determined that the menopause was not going to be, to be this thing that was going to make me feel 
small and insignificant and whatever. But, you know, I can remember, you know, women saying, or my sister, older sister saying, oh, God, I have a hot flush as if, and I was thinking, well, it's probably uncomfortable, but it is just a hot flush. And it, it seemed to me when women talked about it to take on a larger significance mm. than the actual physical symptoms. So having then gone through the menopause with ease, I have to say, not because I didn't have these physical symptoms. So women say, oh, well, you must feel like that because you didn't, you know, you didn't wake up in the middle of the night with hot sweats or whatever can show you that I did. But basically what I think is, I think that the menopause is like everything else. It's, it's so imbued with all the other areas of a woman's life. If, if, uh, within sexism, I mean. So if women, older women were revered, I think the menopause, we would still have the same physical sensations, which are not that bad, actually. You know, nobody's chopping a head off. Um, um, if we didn't feel that this was a decline down to death, which is basically how it's understood, and that postmenopausal women are not sexually attractive, postmenopausal women, you know, have all sorts of things which make them not able to have sex. This is all utter nonsense, by the way, in itself, but best not go too intimately down <laughs> that area. Um, um, if, if it was something to be proud of, to embrace, and if society gave you stature as an older woman and wanted the wisdom that you have, instead of, you know, having um, their husbands running off with young women the same age as their daughters. That's never happened to me, by the way, in case anybody thinks it has. It hasn't. Um, that, um, of course, women are going to feel uncomfortable at the physical manifestation of, of, of not being an object of sexual desire. Mm. Of course they are. Yeah. And so we've just got to rebel against that. We, Charlie J, we have to start a new... When the <laughs> woman, a woman, <laughs> there was a comment in one of the groups today. Yeah. And I did have to, I, I, I try to be compassionate when I oh, answer. And it's often things like someone will say, I'm doing a full-time job and I'm still having to do the cooking and the cleaning. And I was like, well, just don't do it. That, yeah. That's there's a solution just refuse yeah. to do it and see how yeah. see if he starves to death um but one woman said uh my husband's no longer interested in uh sex i think they were in their mid-50s both of them my husband's no longer interested in sex and it's making me feel really terrible and <laughs> a lot of the women were saying i just said well do you think he's actually uh, consuming a lot of pornography. I was just going um, to say, tell him to get off the porn. <laughs> That's what I said. I said, I think two things, talk to the man and also stop him using porn. But one woman said, oh, the thing is, um, in order for men to feel as sexually attracted, I, I promise this is true. In yeah. order for a man to feel sexually attracted to a woman, he needs to objectify her. And if you've been in a long relationship, he can, no, he can no longer objectify you. And she said, oh, this has happened in every long-term relationship. And I said, well, I think you've just had really unhealthy relationships because you can't possibly think so lowly of uh, sexuality, i.e. all men, that 
that that's how you feel about them. Why would you ever want to go out with one if you genuinely thought that that's what they think? Do you know, I don't, I don't think that um, you call yourself a feminist anymore. Um, I, I'm not sure whether that's right or not. Um, it's right. Uh, that's right. So, um, so that's fine. <laughs> but um, I think that I, I do call myself a feminist, but do you know, as a feminist, I think I'm much, um, I have far more respect for men than a lot of women who refuse feminism. Because I actually think of men, um, uh, my partners, my sons, whatever, as full human beings who are capable of entering into intimate sexual relationships one human being to another and that that is far more enriching than any you know horrible i mean why and let's not go into uh into <laughs> pornographic images but you know the, the women's the the women who don't call themselves feminist and of course there's a range of reasons why you wouldn't want to call yourself a feminist which i understand but often the people won't call themselves feminists because they think that feminists are men-hating and, and, and that, that somehow that they are not. But actually their expectations of men are so low. It's yeah, unbelievable. so low. Some women's expectations of men. So you know, it astonishes me how many women won't object to their husbands, partners, whatever, watching pornography even at the level of, even um, at the level of knowing that your partner is watching the degradation of women, the actual abuse of women, they're the same age probably as the daughter that you both share with each other. Yes, mad. Or the granddaughter. Um, this needs to be something that is publicly discussed as well because men just. Yeah, this is a whole other area. We best mm. not go down that line. But yes, um, so given that this pornography exists, that men don't have to engage with their partners after this initial sexual objectification, which is allegedly they had as one-off, because it's they can get it with pornography. Mm. And women get relegated to some other role in the man's life. Usually, I mean, I think... Oh, I think as, as, as terrible as the expectation of a man is low and it's just all over these boards it's so so many of the conversations are about unhappy women with unsupportive husbands number one yeah. but that's that's terrible but yeah. the expectation of women for what they'll put up with i just find um quite just quite staggering i guess that's why um i'm nauseous in the way that i talk about my husband because i just I just wouldn't have it. I, I mean, he does, me. he does far more than me, but yeah. um, you know, he doesn't have I to don't... do makeup. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know, I know. I know exactly what you mean, yeah. And, and I think that I've had better relationships because I don't put up with it. I, yeah. I expect to be in relationship with somebody who is a full human being and who sees me as a yeah. full human being but you know i don't want to get into i don't want this to end with uh with me um having a pile on against some sort of notion of women in general um but, but I, so i'd like to reframe it 
I think I had a discussion with somebody about this the other night, actually, um, in a pub. Um, she said that she didn't like the idea of the term patriarchy. And I understand why you wouldn't like it. It sounds too rigid. It sounds like, you know, some man at the top is beating every all women down with a baton and controlling them and so on and so forth. I mean, some men do. But um, on the whole, patriarchy, I, I will use the term patriarchy because I think it functions in a much more complex than, way than that. It, functions through the identities that we take on and then we act out the freely seemingly freely the very roles that will support patriarchy so i think that often women i didn't think girls are born like this i think they're inducted into feeling that they need to comply and acquiesce and and that's how they will get partners and husbands and that's what mm. their roles are in the family well I somehow I have rebelled against that along the line probably because my mother acquiesced with it so much it was unbearable as a small child watching it um so no I rebelled against that and um so some just like all the other rebellions that you and I have talked about that we've done to a greater or lesser extent in different ways throughout our lives but I'm rebellious you're rebellious um I don't quite understand why people are not more rebellious other than through the explanation I've given mm. you that um people I think it's personality I, re I really think it's innate. I mean, we have we have women rebelling in North Korea and in Iran, you know, in these really oppressive regimes and you will get, well, women and men who break out of that mold. So I do, I do actually fundamentally think that some of these things are innate, that, that, that it's not in our in our upbringing. Yeah. But anyway, I'm glad that uh, innately or uh, through nurture, you're a very difficult woman. And um, I'm very happy to be fighting alongside you. And on that note, because I've kept you for ages, yeah. thank you very much, Heather. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, what did you think? Uh, I thought it was a great chat. Uh, Heather has a breadth of knowledge. Uh, Heather is often uh, talking in an academic um, lecturer way. And so it was really nice to see uh, the Heather that I know, which is not the um, academic who's uh, talking in lofty terms, but it was, it was great to see the real Heather today. Um, as always, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe and do leave me a review if you so desire. I'm told it makes a difference. I have absolutely no idea what difference it makes. But um, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed that today. Uh, onwards and upwards. Uh, I'll see you next time. Bye.